Hi, this is Jordan. You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordic region. I specialize in the gaming industry and today I am your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Goran Falguera, Thomas Sunhede and Victor Blank to discuss gaming. Where will it be in five years' time? Uh, before we delve deeper into the topic in question, let's work our way around the room with some small introductions. Uh, Victor, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I'm Victor Blank, uh, working as an art director here in Stockholm at Moriang Studios. And I worked in games for about 10 years now previously at DICE and as a consultant with Paradox Interactive. And before games, I worked with other stuff, motion graphics, pixel art, animation. Yeah, I'll pass on to Joran, maybe. Great, thank you, Victor. Yeah, I'm Joran Suibay-Fagera, and I've spent most of my career at EA DICE, where I worked as an engineer and a technical director on franchises like Battlefield and Battlefront. Uh, I had a short stint as software engineer working with self-driving cars, and now I'm back in gaming as the CTO and co-founder of Goals. We try to build a competitive, fast-paced football game for everyone. Over to me then, uh, Thomas Sunhede, 42 years old, Swede, working for Embracer Group in Karlstad as a retro gaming advisor. Uh, my main task at the moment is to buy and scout games for our Embracer Games archive, uh, where we want uh, every physical copy of every game ever made in the end. Uh, quite a hard task. I've been trying to get into the games industry, the games industry for a while. I studied at uh, in VSP in 2001 at uh, probably the first uh, video game education in Sweden, but it kind of sucked. Then I worked a little bit at uh, Avalanche in 2008, and then we got hit by the, by the big depression. And uh, I'm, more of a, I'm more of a collector and maybe historian about games than I am a game developer. So I ended up uh, writing uh, books about games instead and write, uh, wrote a book about uh, the NES in Sweden and the Mega Drive, etc. And then I wrote uh, a book called Svensk Videospelsutveckling, uh, gave game development history in Sweden with my, nowadays, my colleague Martin Lindells. Martin Lindell, yes. Brilliant. Uh, now we've got a context to everyone. Uh, let's move on to the topic in focus. Uh, so you all have a question or a statement that you've prepared on gaming. Where will it be in five years time? So as usual, we'll go around the room and ask everybody to pose their question or statement and the reasons behind it. Uh, each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. Uh, so let's start with Victor. Yeah, so my question is, um, do you think there will be a breakthrough mainstream VR game by 2027? Um, an experience that defines the visual gameplay narrative potential of the medium. And that's my question. Um, and uh, build a backdrop. Um, VR and AR is obviously big emerging technologies have been for some time. Uh, I think it's interesting to, you know, look ahead and see what, uh, what will happen on, on the software front. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> we've been, how long has it been now? we've been in it feels like the same vr state it's kind of it's coming it's coming and then when um when i started thinking about it again it's like so yeah now we're kind of there right in terms of in terms of install base it's getting pretty big right so you have are we up to about i think 16 million or something like that globally uh, as a as a platform and if you look at uh, for instance if you have only the Gen 4, Gen 5 Xboxes, there are 60 million. So it's it's uh, it's way less than a platform like that, but it's but it's kind of already there, and that makes uh, Victor's question kind of interesting because we haven't found the. Uh, so so what is an archetypical VR game, right? Uh, in the beginning, we all thought that yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be you just walk into a world, and then we realized it's really hard to walk 
in VR. <laughs> and then we realized there's a bunch of other problems. So we had, I mean, uh, you and me, Victor, we built a VR game a long time ago for, for uh, Battlefront. And, um, and that was the most amazing experience sitting in an, uh, an X-Wing cockpit what, looking around. I mean, I almost started, my, the, the kid in me almost started crying because I was sitting in an X-Wing. But that's kind of it, right? Uh, so, yeah. yeah. And, and then yeah, you have the, actually, I, I've completely uh, not forgot, but, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting. I remember the developer who was kind of prototyping it. And he just got, like, Beggar's Canyon up and running, like, came over to his desk like put the vr helmet on and then it's like we still had like trick moves so you could like flip the x-wing so everything flipped in vr which was you know nauseating but uh, i think we you know removed that for the actual like the the mission that the like, criterion co-developed but it's uh actually had you know um star wars squadrons i think that uh, is a game that you know they sort of designed it a little bit from the ground up um so i think you know when i think of like the top games that have been kind of pushing things forward and maybe has the had the most reach in terms of play base. It's you know, Sarum Squadrons is one of them. I think Beat Saber has like four million players. Half-Life Elixir, which I think is you know maybe the um, you know the the most immersive one. I think the one for me that's you know taking things further with production value and fidelity. And I think that has about a million players. So there are you know there are these experiences that in you know in their own different ways are finding things um, you know using the technology in really interesting ways. But, but I, I would say that maybe 90% of the player want to try VR, but is it like is it 5% that actually have the hardware? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I guess. Uh, so if you look I, before Christmas, now I had the first time uh, regular people. I mean, people not uh, into gaming or yeah. or bleeding edge tech come up to me and say, "Have you tried? Uh, have you tried VR?" because they could get their hands on the Oculus Quest, which has the hardware on board, right? Uh, and that is, I mean, that's one thing, right? The, you don't have to have a, um, a 20,000 kroner computer to, to play it or a rig for it. So that's one thing, and I totally agree with you, that would, will expand it. But, um, but Victor, would you say they have solved the, the translation, EA walking in Half-Life? Um, I think, I mean, when I've tried it and it's, you know, admittedly it's like on a quest, I have to move, you know, my rig PC into the living room. I think, you know, there's, there's things that happen there. I think the walking around, they've designed around it in a really interesting way where, you know, the areas, the design, the level design kind of allows you to walk around, you know, within a confine. And then so there are some bigger areas where you still, you teleport. But I think, you know, if you have a decent enough living room, then, then you know, it's sort of walking. <laughs> okay. so, so, so teleporting is how you do it. Is that essentially? You no, know, you walk around. Like, you yeah, walk but around, uh, if uh, you want to move around the bigger world, teleporting yeah, or, or sitting in a cockpit flying, of course. Yeah. So w what about I these, think, yeah, these yeah. walking platforms? Are they available to buy or not? Do they exist? I've seen, I've seen one in Seoul Sidan. He had one. <laughs> but then you have to be mounted on the rig, and it's, it's, it looks cool. But my, in my opinion, VR will really kick off if it meets laser tag called Laser Doom in Sweden. If, if you can put a VR game uh, designed after a real cave dungeon inside an arcade and then match it, I think it would be great. But then it's more like a amusement park ride or something. So, so. Uh, but it's still open, it's right? Which, which, which will be the, I mean, the, the predominant use case for VR because you have the, the chat coming really strong. You have VR chat that is, I mean, raking up lots of concurrent users. Like no one expected that. And then you have the games that we talked about. And then we have uh, maybe the more hardcore experiences or experience VR simulation. I don't know what you call it. And I guess they're all equally strong in terms of taking the lead. I, and I don't know the sales, but uh, to me, it seems that they're equally strong. I don't know what you think. I mean, I think the sales, you know, definitely things have picked up with uh, with the Quest. I think the Quest is kind of, the, you know, a hardware that's started, you know, really pushing through to, you know, because of the price point and because of you know the the UX, the the ease of setting it up is kind of there. And when you look back five years, like if you're looking at five years, 
looking five years back, you know, there there was still like, you know, the more high end, you know, the Oculus Rift, um, um, yeah, everything was kind of, you know, connected with cables. So I think, you know, it kind of connects to like, if you can stream things over cloud gaming as well, like streaming more, more higher end games, because it's basically, I think the GPU, the, you know, processor in a, in a Quest is, it's kind of equivalent to a mobile device, a high end mobile device, admittedly. Um, what's, what's the most uh, expensive and the cheapest way of playing VR today? I mean, uh, Quest like, must be the cheapest, right? And that cost around? I think Quest, yeah, Quest 2 is there. Um, you know, there's other, you know, Samsung Gear VR, but I don't know if they make those anymore. Um, yeah, and there's, of course, and the card, cardboard, uh, uh, cardboard thing. Yeah. You put your phone on. <laughs> and the most expensive? Is it like a, this PC rig you, you need to play the most? So if you uh, go... Yeah, probably Valve Index. I think it's it's like one of the more higher end ones, and then yeah, again, yeah, for the headset. Of, you know, then you need something to to uh, to drive it with as well, right? Yeah, and that's only like twenty thirty k sec. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the 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 quest is still like five hundred euros or something. Is that correct? Okay, yeah. So, so your point is that it's still kind of on the high end f for mainstream. Yeah, yeah I what, guess. What's, yeah, compared to a console, gaming console. Yeah, it's true. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and if you, yeah, if you, sorry, if you put it in your living room, it's not very social, right? So, if you have, <laughs> if you have kids, you not you don't buy them one quest and then say fight fight for it right so you're gonna probably gonna buy a switch or, or another yeah. console, right so or, or stuff two like quest that. for for, for <laughs> grand yeah yeah, yeah but I, I guess I think that's the yeah. thing you know I kind of wonder if it, you know in the same way that we you know when you sort of look at like you know the kind of the grow the growing part of gaming being part of a mass culture in you know in a way that maybe it wasn't 20 years ago 30 years ago. You know, there's basically more of everything, right? There's more mobile games, there's more PC games, more more console games. Um, you know, easier to access, like you know, all the libraries of of retro games. So I think you know, VR. I think VR is kind of here to stay, and it will probably you know have its have its own place within you know the people who who play it. And it's probably you know, like you say, you know, you don't play like Switch, like Overcooked, like a party game in you know with your friends. But it's something that you know you want to kind of you know. Go to a galaxy far away and you know role play star wars or you know um yeah sure and then there's the the, the the beat saber crowd as well i mean it's a very isolated thing but people are having a blast with it and it's uh and and, and it's a design that makes sense to that platform right so and, and and that is it's kind of exercise as well right i i hear yeah, I think there's or... yeah, there, there's that, that sub-segment of, you know, exercise in VR. I haven't, like, tapped into it that much. But, but I mean, obviously, I mean, what do you guys think about, you know, Meta, Metaverse, Facebook, Oculus, and, you know, how they're... Um, how will that I, kind I of would say, as my colleague, Mark Lindell, he says it, it's going to be a lot of empty worlds out there. <laughs> <laughs> I have I I haven't even got the understanding of it yet. I think uh, as as he as he says, it's going to be a lot of uh, empty worlds. I mean, there there's uh, these old games uh, like the uh, what's it, Second Life and Ultima. People spent yeah. a lot of time in it, but it was just a small small percentage that used them, I guess. So so uh, metaverse, sure. People who just sit home and don't have a life might be in there 90% of the day. I don't know. But uh, yeah. mainstream, but, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I think it's maybe, you know, equally kind of a social media punk dystopia. Like, you know, and on the one hand, you have the ultra rich there. They'll be traveling like in real life to space. And, you know, the rest of us were crammed in mega cities, like with our <laughs> VR helmets going to space. Yeah. But, like so, so if we can you know, sidestep the, the reality <laughs> for a while. I, I still have, like, 
I was I grew up in the 90s. I still have this dream about you know Tad Williams' Otherland. If you've read those, the books, we we we. I mean, you spend time and have friends, and you have another life in there. I mean, I still think it can happen, even though it's. I mean, it's starting to happen. That's what we talked about the VR chats, but the the fidelity of the, the visual fidelity and the uh, I guess the ergonomics of it isn't quite there yet. I mean, I, I don't know how many hours people spend in, in VR headset now comfortably, uh, but and I don't even know if it is hours. But um, but once we get past that and we get past, you know, the nausea, I mean, I could easily spend, I, I don't, it's higher quality, as you say, Victor, to actually go somewhere, but it feels kind of bad and Greta isn't going to be happy to fly <laughs> around the world. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. You don't, you don't believe it's, it's for games uh, at all. It's, it's just uh, instead of having a vacation or something. I mean, I could hang around, just hang around. Uh, so, so I have my one of my first, you know, aha uh, experiences for VR was uh, just a 360 camera. You've been in those experiences, right? So they stitch together a dome around you. And you can, so it is essentially it was a reporter on a beach in Greece where refugees was coming uh, coming to shore. And then there, so you see it uh, as a regular camera angle. But while I'm in there listening to the reporter, I, I turn my head and I can see behind the reporter and I can see all the misery behind the people there. That was my first time I realized, okay, so I'm, 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 my brain is transported now. I almost felt uh, the smell of the ocean, right? So I'm saying, it doesn't take much to trick my brain to be in VR. And, I think uh, we need to talk, talk about smell games. In the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think, you know, for me, what, you know, definitely like playing, playing Half-Life Alex and, you know, growing up having played like Half-Life 1 and 2, like being back in City 17 in, you know, that type of setting, I was like, mm, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of, it's kind of, get it. It's like, is it here? Is it almost here? Because, you know, it's kind of, you know, the, the geek in me growing up in the 90s, right, with like, you know, cyberpunk movies like Johnny Mnemonic and, you know, they were kind of like, you know, that whole sort of promise of the future. And I remember, um, Thomas, you probably are familiar with, you know, the older Atari consoles like the Jaguar. They had a prototype VR helmet, I think, and that, yeah. it was never released. You know, the 14-year-old, 15-year-old and me seeing it, I was like, oh, I'm going to play like Alien versus Predator and Doom and, you know, these games in VR. But, you know, it never sort of, it never came to be. I think Sega had a helmet also in the 90s, but there were one uh, available in the arcades. I, um, I thought, I all my life I thought it was Sega's, but it was black and yellow and it was another company. And it was extremely boxy, but you, you could turn your head and, and look at things. But there's like five of them left in the world or something. We're actually looking for one. <laughs> but what, what about AR? Is AR going to kick the butt of VR, or is it a di totally different system? You think? Um, I mean, I think AR. I mean, it's, it definitely hit the mainstream with Pokemon Go, um, for sure. You know, it had, you know, a long, a long-lasting moment. Still does. There's still, you know, huge player base. I'd imagine my, my kid doesn't play Pokemon Go anyway, but we spent a lot of time, you know, uh, on the streets. Um, and you know, Minecraft Earth explored it. Um, I think there was a Harry Potter um, kind of drive for 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 a game that explored it as well. Um, so, but it's an interesting one. I mean, I think AR also is the kind of thing that has you know uses beyond gaming. Um, but I think with gaming, mostly it comes through mobile uh, mobile games. Yeah, and I also I've seen something about AR in board games, and there it might work quite good because you're you're on a table playing board games or card games and you have this ar experience that might be it maybe not for video games maybe more for board games or something else in the future so can you play board games without having a drink i mean how do you drink with the headset you have uh, you have your mobile phone. You watch it through your mobile phone. It's kind okay. of boring, but it's uh... oh, okay. Yeah, I see. I see. So you, you don't you, uh, you don't believe in 
drinking with VR headset on, on the beach in Hawaii with your friends on the... No, we're not there yet. They have to be oh, okay. you know, less clunky. You know, slim them down a bit. Okay. What about uh, uh, recreational drugs? Through, through L VR. LSD and, <laughs> and VR. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that would be tripping. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we'll move on to the next question there. Uh, <laughs> uh, Goran, can we come to you next for your question, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was actually kind of a kind of a nice segue there with the empty worlds uh, that Thomas mentioned, because um, my question is around procedural generation of content and uh, essentially what's the what's the what's the visual quality limit of it and and which types of assets is it suitable for i mean is it suitable for only worlds or objects or even characters and i think uh, i i'm i'm curious what it will do to the to the games obviously we have a lot of void to fill as thomas mentioned in 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 the metaverse but also will it make uh, parts of the game dev or, or will it rather will it uh, kind of skew parts of game dev to more procedural techie content creation or will we free up time for the artists to do actually increase the visual quality while we create the basis procedurally and and also the types of games i think I think is interesting will we be able to generate or will a small team be able to create triple a uh, visual quality thanks to these tools. And what possibilities will that open up? Because the AAA titles always have to hit a certain uh, a certain size of a target audience, while as smaller teams can hit uh, a much more interesting niche for, for us as individuals. So that's why, that's my question. What can we do? Well, yeah. For Lamer, this is random uh, generated terrain, etc. No, not random. So it's procedural. So it's basically okay. based on. Um, so if you if you uh, ten years ago, if you wanted to create a rock at dice, you had to painstakingly do it by hand yeah. in a 3D modeling tool like Blender or 3D yeah. Studio Max. Uh, today you can use your mouse and parameters to generate uh, rocks that are formed in different ways, and it's been taken much further now. So now you have. Uh, hillsides, uh, mountain ranges, uh, yeah. complete levels with forests, trees, uh, the leaves. And uh, yeah, so it's procedurally generated content and it's done by algorithms, uh, which helps us who are not artists to create stuff that has almost the same visual quality and it varies. So it, it's, it's, the, it's one of the key components to games like uh, No Man's Sky. Well, where essentially my everything question is here is: Is it is it cheaper to to develop this tool or hire a studio in a, a country like Romania or Thailand or something? Well, for for the first character or the second, sure, uh, you would probably get higher quality uh, from manual work, just in as in any manual work. Yeah. But when you get up to a million characters then yeah, you can't afford it, right? Yeah, so it's, it's a scaling issue. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing I think that, you know, uh, thinking about this, like, you know, common use case or like maybe obvious use cases, like, yeah, like large dynamic environments, you know, using like neural networks to like generate terrain. So more kind of suited like level wise, right? Like open worlds. Um, I think it's really, you know, quite interesting there because, you know, you can kind of design and craft like really, really big content. And, you know, you mentioned No Man's Sky. I think there's a lot of, you know, looking at those types of worlds, like, uh, you know, you can look at like Elite, right? Like it's kind of procedurally generated galaxies yep. back in the day. Minecraft as well, right? Like Minecraft is, you know, it has this, you know, value of um, being yep. simple and complex. There's a lot Good of simplicity, example. like how you get started in game. But, you know, for, for a, a game that's older than a decade, it still has this, you know, amazing complexity with how worlds are seeded and built and, you know, inherent complexity in the game. But No Man's Sky is, I mean, it's interesting because it sort of, it touches a little bit on on something, I think it's like, 
that's the challenge. Uh, maybe in procedural content, it's kind of it's vast, but it kind of becomes generic, right? So I think they, you know, they have like 18 trillion planets. But after you've been to, I don't know, this is my my subjective experience. But you know, after 20 planets, I was like, they all started to feel kind of familiar. But I think a lot yeah. of the things they did in that game, and I did spend you know a fair bit of time. It's like what they did with music. You can call that procedural as well. It was kind of algorithmic, and you know responsive to how you play the game and what things happen. I think that was like, yeah, it was amazing. You touch upon something very interesting there that I maybe forgot to mention. But as you say, you have uh, in, in Minecraft is a really good example of procedurally generated content for the levels. And you have, as you say, you have a seed that you use to generate the, 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 the level. And you can take that seed from Victor's computer, move it to your computer, Thomas, and generate the exact same world because it's deterministic. Right. And this means you have essentially uh, compressed all the all the information about the world into a seed. And that that is so small. So you can, you know, you can send it in the subject of a of, a, of an email. I don't know how the seed looks for, for Minecraft, but in theory. So imagine doing this with more, uh, even more detailed worlds. We can, so, so saving the static meshes or the meshes or the textures and everything for a world, that would take uh, endless gigabytes for a world like uh, No Man's Sky or for a galaxy. But uh, procedurally generated content enables us to save a seed and then generate it on other computers. So you can, you can download a client that is 100 megabytes, but you can get an endless world once it's generated. So that's a very good point, Victor, with procedurally generated content. It saves, uh, it saves the space. And also, uh, I mean, the, 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 uh, the holy grail in the metaverse, and that is you know, spoken about a lot is moving you know, assets between games and game engines. It's like, yeah, we, and, and, and those of us in gaming industry start thinking, oh shit, that's gonna be complicated. I have to create a script that moves that coordinate. Oh, that's gonna be hard. But the thing is, if we, if we agree on a, a protocol or, or every engine has a, an adapter for procedurally generating stuff, it won't look the same. So the, the world won't look the same in Minecraft uh, and in Frostbite and in Unreal, but it would it might be similar or have similar um, uh, similar features. And now it becomes really cool, right? Because you could take your world in Minecraft and look at it rendered in Frostbite or in Unreal Engine uh, with the different materials, obviously. But yeah, so that's really cool. Yeah. I think it's interesting how you um, um, you mentioned characters as well, like you know, kind of using, I guess, almost like an avatar creative system, uh, like metahumans in UE5 comes to mind, like populating an entire world with generated characters, and you know, you can have like on the plus side, right? You have like infinite variety and replayability. I think replayability is a big, you know, sort of big pro for. Uh, procedural content and you know I mentioned as well like plastic content creation you don't need an army of character artists and, and you know designing content but then you know the downside is things can become generic and maybe you can't like tailor and design characters you know like how they look and you know what they wear and where they fit in the story and you know cyberpunk 2077 sort of I don't know if they use that to populate their world but I did feel there was like this um this kind of marking difference between the, you know, the sort of the hero, the hero storyline characters that you meet and the ones that you meet outside in the world, they feel more like, you know, they're, they're kind of kind of cut from the same cyberpunk cloth and, you know, just in infinite varieties. So they, you know, they stand out, but they also kind of stand out. So you, so you think, can you call this a AI? making these worlds? Well, part, parts of it will be probably neural networks, right? And, and, and neural networks are sorted into machine learning or AI. So you would have, you would feed uh, an algorithm or train it on a bunch of different worlds or say, let's go for a pine tree. So you would feed it a uh, hundred thousand pine trees and then the network would be able to reproduce uh, a pine tree or, or an equivalent and the and the model that you create is very small compared to, you know, the hundred thousand images of a pine tree, 
pine tree that you put into it. And also you will get, uh, depending on, uh, depending on, you, you can, you can, uh, you can play with the parameters, right? So you can create different pine trees. So yes. So AI goes into it, although it's, yeah. uh, you know, different application. So, uh, so you think AI will make, say, make the terrain and maybe later make the characters will make more of the game also. But the, yeah, take, but take the, over, the, take mean, over the whole process <laughs> of making a game. Yes, put it to a monkey and a computer and let it roll. Yeah, machine learning is an interesting one. I think you know, thinking of you know, sort of coming back to characters is like, can you input things right, like? Say fashion as an example. Fashion, you know, it's sort of in itself like a language. You know how people express themselves and and you know what you wear. Um, but you know, can you kind of input words and and a backstory and things and to a machine and then it sort of generates the characters from from those parameters. Um, I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, and and I mean, we I, I mentioned the word before the uh, uncanny valley. And in term and for characters, it's really, it's really difficult, right? Because you have the, you have a problem where humans see, humans see a robot that looks almost like a human, it's like ninety nine point nine percent there. But we feel really, uh, we we get a weird emotional response because we feel something is off, right? And that's where, that's where they do it really good with meta human because they're getting so close. So we can have characters that look really good. Uh, but meta-human isn't procedural in that way because it's blending. It's blending a bunch of real faces, right? So it's mm. a bit cheating in terms of uh, procedural generation. And, and, and the problem with that uh, scenario is that you can't save it as a seed, as we talked about, because you have to save the, the, the blend and that will uh, consume huge amounts of disk space. But uh, yeah, and and I guess uh, in the world today we're not we haven't gotten very far in terms of character generation, but uh, but uh, on the on the AI side and machine learning we've come very far generating. Uh, you you've probably seen the apps or something on Twitter where you have someone you putting you know Tom Cruise face on someone else. Uh, I mean, if they can do that in two D, I mean, how far are we away from doing it in three D, right? And that creates some kind of cool experiences for us in the future where you can, you know, I don't know, meet yourself. I don't know. That would yeah. be, maybe, yeah, that's we, not, maybe that's not, not the first person I would want to meet, but. Yeah, well, you know, in general, I kind of, you know, it's a sidetrack, right? But like, you know, recreating characters from the past, like in, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker kind of being recreated in The Mandalorian. You know, it's obviously not Mark Hamill today because he's like 70, but, you know, he's, is pretty much there i think you know there's many many other examples like the tech has kind of come there to you know um bring in um you know past past actors uh into you know into the world today so i think jet lee as well he actually turned down the contract because they were like well as part of the contract we're going to record all your moves and he's like but i've spent my whole life you know training and you know mastering martial arts and you, i'm gonna you know give you the copyright to what i've trained my whole life to use for indefinitely so he was like no, I'm not going to be in this, you know, blockbuster uh, movie. Um, maybe it's uh, just a tale. But I, I guess humans is is the last thing that graphics hasn't kept up with in games. Because I watched this video, I think it was on Facebook. It was a motorcycle video, and I watched it, and I said, "Yeah, he's riding his motorcycle." And then he started to push off the other guys in the race, and I was. What's he doing? And then it, I suddenly realized it's a game. I thought it was a video from a, a motorcycle race. So it, it, the the only thing that I caught it from it was that he he drove really careless. <laughs> I mean, one thing I've been thinking a lot with, like coming back to AI as well, is um, conversational AI, which is not really used in games yet, but it's used in in other you know in other scenarios and other applications there's a few companies here in sweden that push it like quite far like for head robotics and and a few other ones and they you know they they have applications that kind of go into gaming and basically the ai itself doesn't know you know the game that you're playing so the example is like a card game and you then talk to the ai you know trying to solve problems in the game so like hmm, what do you think do you think the you know the wolf is faster than uh, than a moose and they asked, like, I don't know, the you know, the wolf is kind of it's small and nimble and muscly, but the moose it has really long legs, and so it doesn't really like 
know the answers to your problem. So, you know, that's kind of an interesting scenario as well, where, you know, the same way you have NPCs and companions in game, but, you know, their, their intelligence is evolved where, you know, they can kind of take in the world and make, you know, guesses and assumptions and maybe not decisions, but, you know, sort of companion you through a, through a world. It and, takes, you know, takes out a lot of the, the linearity, right? That we, that we kind of maybe not like in old games where you, it's just one path to follow and it feels very narrow. But if we do stuff like you say now, I mean, you know, every player will have a different experience of the game, which is, I mean, it's a nightmare for, for quality verification, but, <laughs> but it's fun. But what about when you play like RPGs? Do you want to uh, travel every path, talk to every uh, NPC, etc.? Because I still have that in my mind. Yeah, that's the, your old complete the, the game uh, mentality. Yeah, it's from the Nintendo and <laughs> Faxanadu and stuff like that. You need to search every pot and uh, and it's 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 boring because my mindset is still uh, in that. What about you guys? Yes, I mean I definitely have a when I do get into you know a game. It, it happens you know because of time you know and kids and stuff less now, but. Definitely before with, you know, like Fallout games and Morrowind and Elder Scrolls games, you know, once you're kind of well into the world and, you know, you have your, you know, your to-do list and, and, you know, your quests and stuff that you need to do and places that you need to travel, then, yeah, you know, it's, 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 uh, yeah, you get the, definitely get the, the completionist, uh, you know, urge to try and, you know, do everything in the world. I think for me, it's uh, uh, last decade maybe I've been completely off uh, single player RPGs because I have I'm kind of I feel like I am being puppeteered by a game dev and really hate yeah, that feeling. True. So so I really like uh, multiplayer games, but uh, but I think something like what Victor mentions could bring me back uh, if it's more organic because that would give me a unique experience and it wouldn't be yeah like I'm following someone's uh, dictated path i feel that most games maybe i'm not i'm not playing the latest games but uh, you you never miss out if you if you go to the the right path you will you can go back and make the left path in almost every game you you have to make more games if you choose the right side then you you lose 30 percent of the game or something yeah. yeah, but I think you're probably eventually going to have to let it go, Thomas, to completely, <laughs> I mean, find everything. I mean, there's still achievements, right, in those games for finding almost everything or everything. Yeah. But uh, as as the experiences grow, uh, or, or I mean, um, you, 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 I don't know if you theoretically can complete No Man's Sky. It's, is it, it's not infinite, but I mean, there's no time. Yeah, no, I mean, maybe you can get all the Xbox achievements and, you know, trophies and stuff like that. But, yeah, you know, exactly. Everything that's in that world, I think that's, you know, it's uh, it's coming back a little bit to Second Life. I think, you know, it's I haven't played it now that they introduced multiplayer, but then, you know, it sort of becomes endlessly replayable, right? Because you're doing it with friends and, you know, you're constantly discovering things. Um, Okay, brilliant. Um, we'll move it on, uh, and last but certainly not least, Thomas, are you ready with your question slash statement? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, will there be a PlayStation 6 or not? I think the the cloud gaming, the hardware, the, the games, they almost need to make one certain uh, commercial hardware that uh, all... all uh, developers can use what do you think i think you know uh, looking like ps6 i think looking maybe you know it's hard to quantify in five years but say if we look back 20 years right to the roughly around the same time the ps2 launched uh, it's kind of it's a leap that's a little bit easier to take in um you know i still haven't been able to even buy a ps5 yet i hope i will be in five years in you know 2027 <laughs> uh, but you know the ps2 is like it's one of the best-selling consoles of all time it was kind of this culmination of you know the holy grail of a home multimedia machine uh, you know instead of dvd player and, and stuff like that and many you know amiga cd32 and cdi and 3do they kind of aspired to i think you know what what the ps2 kind of you know hit the ball out of the park um and i think it's also like 
when you look at the difference maybe between the PS2 and the PS5 now, like the PS2 launched with a motion engine, uh, which at the time was like, it's a very evocative name. And, you know, George Lucas spoke about the real-time rendering capabilities and Hideo Kojima wanted to like utilize, you know, the real-time realistic feeling to express like torrential rain and stuff. Um, and, you know, recently seen the Matrix Awakens on PS5 and, you know, it has the amount of like graphic fidelity through photogrammetry and kind of almost real-time GI. And you compare it to Enter the Matrix on the PS2, which at the time was, you know, state a state of the art game, and you know, part of this like, you know, storytelling push across many different mediums within the Matrix franchise. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting to see like how far will things go in, in twenty years. I think uh, maybe a PS6, but maybe you know, at that point, will we be in like in cloud gaming, where it's basically you know, you're streaming, you're streaming more things to a device in your home, and you know, you don't need to have, uh, you know, the the hardware in your home anymore. I think maybe that's that's where it could go. But someone needs to keep the hardware, right? So, I mean, I I, I think it's interesting, and I totally see the uh, uh, I totally see the the similarities between other streaming media uh, like television or series. The, the difference is the the real time simulation and rendering, though, right? Because uh, on, on, on TV, you can do it beforehand on a rig somewhere, yeah. and you, then you can use the same rendering for everyone. But uh, for, for uh, yeah, so, so, so interactivity is the problem here, right? That you do something that affects the world, and the, the world has to, to adjust to that. And that, that's why we have to do the real-time rendering and simulation. And so we, so we have to put this hardware somewhere. And, and if someone tells me, yeah, I'll put it in the cloud and you can buy a service. And I'll I'll say, that's very nice of you. And they might get uh, and they might get, you know, they might get they can utilize the hardware for maximum time and they can probably figure something out in the so, so the current engines can't do this, but in the future they, they might, you know, the hardware can collaborate on, on rendering for multiple users, etc. And and the the and what the the nice people hosting this hardware for you will gain is a, a, a much greater audience, right? Because they will have accessibility. So you, so you might get 10 times or 100 times the users. Um, and also, yeah, and the, and the shared resources. But um, but it still has to be done. And, and that I think is, uh, and that gets me to the, to my next thing, which is, so if we're talking about, if we project this like five years, in the future, let's say these VR experiences become more interesting. Uh, and, and VR, we're talking 120 FPS, I guess, around or 90 to 120 to, to not get, you know, get motion sickness. And that's, uh, so if we're talking an update loop in a game, that's eight milliseconds, around eight milliseconds. And and, and if you sell, so if you if you just miss an update, you have eight milliseconds, and then you're really close to the server. So you have like eight or ten milliseconds to go to the server, and then you miss the the update on the server. You have, and that one is running on 120 hertz as well. And then so you have like 15 milliseconds before the signal comes back to you, and that makes VR re really hard for for you know streaming purposes. Uh, but there's a lot more latency though. Just like the input could be zero to ten. Yeah. So, so yeah. But so, so and you have that, and then you have the the competitive gaming scene, which I'm in. You have Counter Strike, or you have, and, and we are digging really deep into like every part of of the input latency. And if we add ten milliseconds to that, we're talking one, two, three milliseconds. So you add ten to that, it's not going to feel snappy. Uh, so. So I think my my take is there's a huge ecosystem of games, uh, like all the all the casual stuff and all the uh, non-competitive, uh, uh, you know, old stuff. That's going to be available, but then you, you're going to have the competitive stuff and the VR stuff that is going to need something. And I don't know, maybe that becomes the niche, or if VR takes the place of the, you know. So the old games now they move into the to the cloud, and then VR comes and say, "Hey, hey, we need that hardware back again." <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's the what's the limits of cloud gaming today? 
what games can you play and what, what can't you play? I mean, have any of you guys tried the Stadia? I have a friend who tried Stadia and he played he played Cyberpunk 2077, like, and it was, you know, pretty smooth, like 30 FPS and then, he, you know, yeah, I think he had a pretty, you know. Uh, I have a friend also that, uh, that really likes it, but but that's the only one I've heard that have it. I mean, it's so... No, but I, 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 RPGs, I think, single player RPGs and even, even low pace multiplayer stuff, maybe MMOs. I guess uh, it's a good fit. I, I I can I can see it for sure. But my take but, is it maybe won't be cloud gaming at one hundred percent. But what if they built in this play box in in the monitors in the TV sets? Oh yeah, that would be cool. Because if they could agree on something. Yeah, if, if they can, Nintendo won't agree. They will make their own shit. But I mean, but I mean. There's, it's no shit, but <laughs> uh, but I mean, if if Sony and Microsoft and Steam joins together or something and make it like Netflix, HBO, yes, choose your channel. There's your PlayStation channel. There's your Xbox channel. Have a go. There's Steam. I mean, I mean, yeah, it's it's a bit utopian to be honest, Thomas, because <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> But, yeah, uh, but yeah, you know, sure. Technically, maybe yeah. it's not so much you know the design, the design of the hardware, because you know we, we have less you know peripherals and and you know things like you know in in previous console generations now, right? It's more it's more like uh, you know the machines on a spec side, like a PS5 and an Xbox, they're not that far off. But but I guess it's still you know having your own ecosystem, you know, so like Xbox Game Pass and then, you know, PlayStation Store and the studios that they own, you know, there's been, I hear there's been some studios being acquired recently uh, by the big players, you know, so I think it's like kind of having their, you know, their their own ecosystem of games and, you know, how does that fit in with putting a device inside a Sony or an LG set? So I think there's maybe those hurdles to get around but, as well. But you, you remember the 3DO, right? Yeah. And they made a technique, and then they made they, they never made a, their own console. They made a Panasonic and Toshiba, and everybody could make it. And that would be something. I mean, you can buy an Xbox or a PlayStation, but it's it's the same hardware inside. It's just I'm I'm actually playing a game called SnowRunner on the on the. It's because it's not it's not only the the hardware and the cloud. It's also the controllers. I think they need to agree on a controller set because at the moment I'm playing SnowRunner. It's a trucker game on on the Switch, and I have two two TV sets, so I watch Netflix at the same time because it's a really low-paced game. You need something else besides it, and and uh, I have Netflix on an old Xbox 360. And you know the A and B buttons and the B and A buttons. It is different between Nintendo and Xbox. So every time I will go back in the menus, I I, I, I press the wrong button on both consoles. But we but all I mean, agree that the, the the NES was you know the the perfect control. <laughs> and, and I mean it will not get better. And more than two buttons is you know useless. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, it's the Super Nintendo controller. I think that's you know it, it just had the right the right amount of of things. You know, I mean, four we can't even agree. <laughs> no, but uh, I, I mean, back to the to the question on on. Uh, I think I think it's when I see my kids, it's really I, I get so frustrated with them because they're not using the HD content out there. I mean, the high definition content out there. So we get these, we get the, we, we pay extra for ultra Netflix. We, we, we have these amazing consoles and computers, but they want to watch, they want to watch a low, low quality, low, low production value stuff, either streaming or, or consume it, you know, more casually. So maybe Maybe that's the answer to your question, Thomas. That the market is is moving away from these, you know, insane hardware-dependent experiences that we're used to into something else. And I, I don't know. And maybe it's a niche that will have the consoles. But, but it's the same in music, I guess. 
we were used to boom boxes and having big stereos with big speakers. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah. And everybody's just using the phone and with this tiny speaker and I think it's that's okay. It's a very good yeah. analogy, I think. Maybe it's it is that kind of fragmentation. You have you have the people who, you know, want to play in 4K on the latest Xbox and do so you have the people who really want to play high end and you know splash out you know 20 30k swedish swedish sec uh, on you know a vr rig and then you know you can also play fortnite on on, the, on your mobile phone you know if for for a younger audience you have this range of you know of experiences and platforms have you I seen what is growing more, most in sorry. esports uh, yeah have you seen the the pubg mobile esports scene it's like taking off more than League of Legends and Dota, not not more, but it's getting there. It's insane. Mobile is coming. But I guess Jordan yeah. invited the wrong persons. He should be invited like three 14 year old kids instead or something yeah. <laughs> to, to understand know. the future of games. We're too old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from from one perspective, I mean, I'm 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 the same as you, Thomas, but with you know. With with uh, uh, processor architectures and and the way less registers before that you can know everything by heart and now you're like twenty layers of abstraction away from something because everything is so complicated and hard. So yeah, it was simpler times. You could reason about something. I think we need to meet uh, and uh, drink beer with the VR goggles. <laughs> <laughs> That's the that's the part two of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting, like you said, Jaron, about the you know PUBG mobile hitting it. I saw it on in another country on on the bag of chips. You know they had the tokens like you get Doritos for Call of Duty, uh, but yeah, it was another you know brand of chips, and they had like PUBG mobile codes. And I was like, oh, they you know they must be doing pretty big for you know to kind of launch these uh, yeah. tie-ins. And apparently, it looks really weird because they go up on stage with mobile phones. <laughs> and, and, and battle it out. It's like, okay, I mean, of course, that's how we do it. Is this Korea? Uh, no, it was in, in Thailand. But probably in Korea as well. I mean, they, maybe they have different games in their chip bags. I don't know what's big over there right now. Like Korean version. Okay, brilliant. Um, and we'll leave it there. Uh, this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. And I want to take this opportunity to thank my uh, guests on that one, uh, Gohan, Thomas and Victor, for providing their insights onto the topic. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at jordan.lound at evolution-nordics.com. And we will see you all next time.